On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, Talk to us at Cordell and Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. This is Innovation and Leadership, where we interview Navy SEALs, venture capitalists, pro athletes, best-selling authors, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of high achievers as we can get to come on the show. Today's episode is going to be from our mini-series that we created with Corporate Alliance, asking top CEOs and executives and entrepreneurs who have had very large exits specifically about their thoughts on leadership and people. Oh, I've always valued relationships. They've always proven to be uh, valuable but at every level, even as electronics and, and, and technology become more and more prevalent in the business world. And the ability to conduct business without face-to-face meetings uh, becomes more and more prevalent. The fact of the matter is, is the relationship is still hugely important. And it is the... It can be a deal breaker, a deal maker in in all situations. This is another episode of our innovation and leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really... Uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let them become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. And John, for people who don't know what Mighty Light is, can you can you give me an example of the kind of stuff you guys make and... Tell them about Mighty Light. Sure. We're a uh, domestic manufacturer of uh, tables and chairs, folding uh, portable uh, chairs, banquet seating, folding tables, static tables, wood furniture for restaurants, basically a lot of business-driven furniture uh, for use in large meeting areas and uh, dining spaces. Now, And if I understand, your ABS tables are kind of like the standard for, for spaces like that. Is that right? That, it's correct. Uh, they truly are. It was developed over 30 years ago as a lightweight, durable alternative to the wood tables of that era. And uh, it has stood the test of time. It uh, still to this day is the go-to table for large hotels, convention centers, uh, meeting places, and banquet facilities of any kind. And You've been in private equity. You've done other businesses before this. Tell us a little bit about some of the things you've done in your career. Well, we've uh, uh, for 14 years, I worked with uh, Newell Rubbermaid and uh, ran a number of companies with them, came up through the ranks 
of sales and marketing and then uh, uh, into senior leadership. Uh, after about 14 or 15 mm-hmm. years, I left and went into private equity where uh, ran a number of different companies for a number of firms from New York to San Francisco. Uh, I've been in the candle business, the uh, lighting business, the luggage business, and now I find myself in the furniture business. Okay. Um, What's one of the things that you would start with saying, you know, looking at this career and the many successes you've had, what's something you wish you would have learned earlier? Well, one of the the major things that uh, I think every young executive as they're coming up uh, has to understand is that lack of experience doesn't mean uh, lack of uh, acumen. Um, I think that young executives too often try to uh, impose a, a standard on themselves that's unrealistic for someone who hasn't been there and done that, if you will. Uh, they see themselves as having to know everything. They make decisions in haste. They make uh, try to be too decisive uh, too often uh, because they believe that's the expectation of them. And in many cases, it is. Uh, the people around them expect them to know everything and be able to do everything right out of the gate. And many times, uh, I think the better course of action is just to slow down, ask a lot of questions, listen. Um, most executives who achieve that level of success, whether young or old, have some degree of talent or they wouldn't be there and probably wouldn't been given the opportunity. And I think recognizing uh, when to act and when to listen and uh, and learn is probably uh, a great way to approach it. Uh, as I said, when I was a younger man, I think I probably erred on the side of action. And while generally speaking, it worked out uh, in hindsight, uh, a, a, a more deliberate course of action in certain areas might have been uh, more prudent. Yeah, you just saying that makes me think, you know, my mentor who I ended up running that private equity fund with, um, I think that I was a little bit of like a ready fire aim guy. Yeah. And then and then we had to do all sorts of work to go clean it up. You know, and like typically we pulled it off, but man, how much extra work created for ourselves by you know, not doing the measure twice cut once. Yeah, and the and the thing, you know, the funny part of it is you know, and I say this because it, and it's a it's a two-edged sword, right? If you move too slowly, you're also not doing your job. So it's a very difficult balance. But the key I think is um is to recognize that, look, most young executives, most people who are successful and achieve a level of leadership and the ability to influence others, um, they're pretty good at what they do. As I said earlier, they, they have a degree of talent that someone saw in them that put them in that position. And you're going to be right more than you're wrong. Uh, the key to a good executive is to be right more than they're wrong. Nobody's right all the time. But a really good executive is right. 70% of the time. A great one's right 90% of the time. But the key is not to be right 50% of the time by making decisions in haste or decisions that are uh, ill-informed or simply make a decision to make a decision. Change something to change something because you're the CEO. You think you have to. Um, that's where, the, that's where the, uh, the, the ball of yarn becomes uh, unraveled. So it's, it's not so much about, you know, deliberate uh, action as much as it is about learning and about understanding that you're a smart guy or girl, you know what you're doing, you have the faith of the people who put you there, understand and acknowledge what you don't know, go learn it, and then act. And the stuff you do know, the reason you got there to begin with, act quickly and act decisively. Super solid advice. When you think about um, something that you 
realized you needed to learn and you took the time to go learn it? What, what was one of these skill sets that maybe later in your career or halfway through your career you decided to go pay the price to learn? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I'll answer that question two ways. 90% of the things I learned, I learned because I wasn't smart enough to take the deliberate action that I uh, suggest uh, as, as advice today. Uh, that was a, a lesson learned the hard way, uh, not the easy way. One of the things I did... Uh, uh, what I recognized early on is I, I ran a few divisions for Newell Rubbermaid early in my career and then um, uh, d- realized that there was a lot I didn't know, uh, just book learning uh, stuff. So I went back and got my MBA, and that was uh, that was a key for me is to say, look, I could, I could try to wing this thing and maybe turn out okay, but if I really want to lead the organization to a place that, first of all, it deserves to go, and that the people who work for that organization deserve for me, then I really ought to know more about these other disciplines around a, a well-run business that I wasn't taught in the climb up the ladder, that I really need to learn in a more formal environment. So uh, I decided to go get a little more book learning, and that was... Uh, uh, yeah, how old were you when you decided to do I was that? 40 years old when I graduated, so it was well into my career. Uh, but... Um, but it was it was an experience, while very difficult, I wouldn't trade for anything. It, it allowed me to do the things I'm doing today because it, it also pointed out it was, you know, in three and a half years of doing it, you realize all you don't know. You know, I suspected there was a lot I didn't know. It became very clear there was a lot I didn't know uh, once you get into these classes and you get into these professors and a peer group of, of study partners who are equally talented and you realize that, yeah, there's a lot you can learn, not just in, a, in this formal environment, but, you know, maybe the subliminal message is there's a lot you can learn from a lot of different people if you allow yourself to network in the right circles. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about that networking for a minute. Um, what's an example of, are there any stories you can think of where something would have been a lot harder if you didn't have the connections you have? Well, yeah, uh, I, I got involved in a networking organization uh, corporate alliance here in, in Utah, uh, when I first moved here, it was suggested to me as a way to not only meet people, but meet other business leaders. Uh, I've never done that before. I, I'd moved around a lot of places. I ran a business in England. I ran a business in Australia. I ran businesses in Buffalo, in Minnesota, in Pittsburgh. And in each stop, it took six to 12 months, not only to learn corporate culture, but to learn the people to have opportunities to to gauge the performance of the organization I was involved with, with other like organizations, not only in the area, but in the industry. And that time was cut very, very short because this was the first opportunity I had here in Utah to get with an organization, talk like Corporate Alliance, talk to other people in that organization, meet people, understand the culture, not only of the business, but of the local community, because we employ over 450 people here in the local community, and um, it cut that learning in half. And that, that type of networking was invaluable to me. It's the first time I'd ever been involved in something like it in my career. And uh, it's proven invaluable here in Utah. Also, I want to give a shout out to one of our sponsors, Skillshare. They're doing a promo for us. For everybody listening to the show, it's Skillshare.com leader, where they're going to let anybody get two months of access to their 18,000 classes for just 99 cents. Uh, at that code, Skillshare.com slash leader. And I think for me, one of the reasons that I like Skillshare and, and probably like the classes that are most attractive to me are the really high credibility ones. Like 
you can learn email marketing from MailChimp. I mean, these are the guys that make $500 million a year sending email out for their customers. They've got the data. They've, they're legitimate experts on the subject. And as I'm getting advice, I know that I should be building my list better than I am. That's the kind of people that I want to get my advice from, and, and you can get it right there on those classes. One last time, uh, if you want that 99 cents for the two months, it's skillshare.com slash leader. Well, I think about, you know, also being a member of Corporate Alliance, right? And I was trying to explain it to one of my other friends, a CEO. He just got a, his company just got venture backed. And um, I was telling him, you really ought to come check this stuff out. And he was saying, like, isn't that one of those things where people just walk around with a business card in their hand when they shake your hand trying to get you to buy their stuff? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> okay, not all networking is created equal, yeah. friend. You know, <laughs> I, that's one of the things I appreciate about, though, is there are real people in that room who are, you know, because you're getting a certain minimum requirement to get in the room. Yeah, that's a great point. And that really is the differentiator. When I first joined Corporate Alliance, it was exactly as your friend described it. I found it to be more of a less of a networking opportunity and a learning environment and more of a, a way to uh, do business. And we don't have a product that is sold uh, B2C. So uh, I had it had no value to me personally. And too many people were, were busy uh, trying to sell things instead of trying to solve problems. Uh, Jeff Rust, who's in charge of, of Corporate Alliance, is, uh, is um, was smart enough to realize, look, there's a place for that, and there's a need for that, and we're not going to get away from that. But there's also a need for uh, a group of uh, executives who don't come there to sell to each other, who come there to learn from each other and pick brains and enjoy uh, uh, recreational time together so they can uh, interact uh, personally as well as professionally. And that there's real value in that. And if you could somehow create those two dynamic environments, uh, both, you know, both masters will be served. And he's done a really good job of it. And that's why I myself am a member of, of C4 and my uh, C-level executives uh, attend the, the luncheons and the activities uh, very, very frequently, as do I. You know, it's, it's funny I, going on their trips and stuff for me. Um, I always come away with something I didn't expect. Like it was something that I hadn't necessarily gone there thinking, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try and see what these guys think about such and such. But the nature of the conversations and you're hearing about somebody else's problem and, and you're weighing in on, Oh, you know, I, I have a client once who had that and here's the thing. And then they start saying, well, what's going on for you? And uh, anyways, I feel like I come away with way more than I ever give at those things, you know? Yeah, I agree. I, the luncheons are difficult uh, for that in that regard, only because they're shorter. But what the luncheons have done for me is facilitate the introductions. And I've met a lot of people through those luncheons. And then the trips themselves is where you're right. Uh, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. You get the real content. Uh, I've met a number of people. Uh, I've only been on a trip or two with the organization. But the, the one I've been on, uh, I agree with you 100%. The, the people that uh, I've met on those trips, uh, the, the conversations we've had uh, have carried over past the trip. And we're in contact today, uh, even months and years after the trips, talking about business challenges and uh, the acquisitions we go through and any number of, uh, you know, funding opportunities. The thing that every company goes through and every CEO is challenged with and uh, and try to get different perspectives on how to approach them and how to overcome certain obstacles. And that type of advice you can't get from your staff. You can't get from strangers. You rarely get from a book. Um, but you can get from a group of people who've done it before or are in the throes of it. And you can give back to those people as well with your own experiences. So it really is a very valuable uh, interactive experience. 
Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, when you think about working with people in general, um, it is interesting, like, to me, the short-term view, like, you know, the guy, sh- you know, you're at some cocktail at some conference <laughs> or something, and he says, he pretends he's interested in you for about 15 seconds till he's, <laughs> while he's evaluating whether he can sell you something, right? Um, it seems l- so efficient to, like, cycle through people so quickly or, you know, just try to go for the go for the jugular and get some sale quickly, right? Yeah. I never find those are the big sales, though. You know, it seems like, in my experience, like, building a genuine relationship with somebody is the stuff that pays year after year after year. Yet in, like, I don't know, the thirst for quarterly commission checks or different <laughs> things, people have been motivated so often to, you know, if I can't get something done now, you know, drop, drop relationships or just not invest to that level. But yet it seems like at the higher levels of business, um, people really are much more willing to invest in each other without some immediate tit for tat. Do you yeah, agree? I, you know, that's a great question. I, 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 I don't know. I've always valued relationships they've always proven to be uh, valuable at every level even as electronics and 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 technology become more and more prevalent in the business world and the ability to conduct business without face-to-face meetings uh, becomes more and more prevalent the fact of the matter is is the relationship is still hugely important and it is the it can be a deal breaker a deal maker in, in all situations whether it's um whether you're motivated uh, to cut those relationships short by virtue of trying to get the quick sale, the quick hit, versus uh, developing a longer-term view of the world via relationship, uh, I, I don't know that. I've, I know that uh, I'm an old guy, and I have uh, old, um, uh, old in my ways and set in my ways uh, in many ways, but uh, uh, the reality is I've always found the relationships that I've gotten in business the most uh, beneficial ones are the ones that have also served me personally. Uh, the people who have given me the most business over time end up being friends over time. Uh, and that, uh, whether that's indicative of, of the value of the relationship, uh, both from a personal and professional standpoint, or whether it's just a natural development of two people who hit it off, if you will, uh, I really don't know. But, uh, I don't go into every business situation or every business interaction thinking I need to build a relationship with this person fast or slow. Uh, I, I tend to think they develop uh, of, uh, in and of themselves. Uh, I think there are many people out there who, frankly, just want a quick relationship, not whether I want one or not as a salesperson or as a, a, a new business partner. I, I don't know that, that I even dictate that. You know, there are people that just say, hey, cut to the chase. Let's get it done. Let's get it over with. Let me say yes or no, and you can move on, and I can move on. Then there are other people who, you know, do want that personal relationship for any number of reasons, all of which have been talked about ad nauseum. So um, I think many times it's dictated to you as opposed to you driving it, but I think you go in open-minded and understanding that no matter how the world has evolved up to now, the relationship is still an extremely important part of business, no matter how it's conducted and no matter from what distance. You know, I'm interested in what this looks like inside of Mighty Light. You know, so often we hear that uh, staff join a company, but they leave a boss, right? (laughs) (laughs) They don't quit a company, they quit a boss, right? So I'm interested in, um, you know, this kind of 
feels like a genuine, straightforward kind of relationships that you like to build. I'm interested in how you help instill that in your own executives or people who are, you know, whose leadership you're trying to grow. What what does that look like? Is it more osmosis with the culture? Do people have one-on-ones? Is there formal training, informal mentoring? Yeah, we have formal training, of course, and, and there's there's always onboarding of some degree with, with our, uh, not only our executive staff, but with uh, all of our mid-level uh, uh, executives and, and above um, in terms of cultural training. But the reality is what I've found is, and the reason we have the longevity we do and, and the loyalty of our people to the company and to each other is that there's a genu- there's, there has to be a genuine connection. People have to know you care about them. You really do. I mean, you know, uh, and, and when I say care about them, I mean it sincerely. Uh, you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't fire anybody. I'm not saying that everybody's here forever. I'm not saying you could lose the company a million dollars and keep your job. But what I am saying is, is I, I've created, a, a, I believe, uh, an environment where people understand that if you are with Mighty Light and you give us, you know, eight hours of your day every day, and you truly are committed to the success of the organization as a whole, the organization will care about you as a whole. We'll care about your family. We'll care about your future. Uh, we will put you through school. We will do whatever we can do to improve you as an individual. And our people know that. Our people know that we care about them as individuals. And, and I do, and our other executives do, and I care about our executives. I think they care about me to some degree, varying degrees, because people are different. Uh, you're right. Not everybody, you know, uh, thrives in that environment. You know, I've been criticized many times for getting too close to my uh, direct reports and my executive staff. Uh, I know all their wives' names. I know their children's names. They've been to my house. They know my family intimately, and and uh, it's the way we conduct business here. It's uh, it's an unusual environment. Uh, uh, I've been told, but it's the way I've run every business I've ever been involved in, and it's served me well over the years. Yeah, I'm interested in that comment about, you know, being criticized for being too close. Um, it seems to me like when stuff gets hard, we're naturally going to go the extra mile for our friends. Uh, so I'm interested. What when what do you think motivates that? Is it because they they want to have the kind of loose affiliation? They won't feel guilty if they need to fire someone? Or what, where do you think a criticism like that comes from? Because it seems pretty counterintuitive. Like, it doesn't seem that helpful to me. Well, you know, it's but it's not. I mean, the traditional school of thought is if you get too close, you can't fire anybody. If you get too close... Uh, failure becomes unmanageable because oh I can't I can't uh, tell Susie that she did a bad job because she's got three kids to raise or I can't tell Dave he's not selling enough and get rid of him and replace him because I know his wife and his children um, and he's got a mortgage he has to pay um, th- that's the traditional school of thought that if as a, as a leader and as a any kind of a person that manages people. You have to keep that professional distance because it's the only thing that will give you objectivity. Uh, I have found that if I communicate to my people up front that the number one overriding objective is the success of Mighty and the, the, the return to our uh, shareholders and stakeholders, the reality is, uh, and I make sure that's very, very clear, the reality is I, uh, I also communicate very clearly, whether it be through insinuation or through it be direct language, that the company comes first. No matter how much I value our personal relationship, the CEO will act accordingly and John Dudash will act accordingly. So as a CEO, I may have to take an action toward an individual or an employee that I wouldn't take as a friend. 
but that doesn't, in my view, change our friendly relationship. I have, there's many people who've left my organization, either voluntarily or involuntarily, that I'm still friends with. Uh, many I'm not. Uh, but that's their choice. Um, and I'm able to make that distinction. I've never had a problem making a tough decision with someone who I've grown close with over many, many years of, uh, of working with. Uh, and um, uh, some people can't do that, so they keep that professional distance, and um, it serves them well. I, I tend to think that I grew up playing sports. I grew up in a sports environment. It's my mentality, and I've always felt like I've always been in team sports, and I've always felt like a really good cohesive team, chemistry, if you will, call it what you want, um, you have a better shot at winning than not. And uh, so I always try to create chemistry. Well, I mean, what it sounds like you're saying to me is, you know, in the in the triage of competing priorities, like I like you, but I also like everybody else whose paycheck depends on this organization succeeding. And, you know, between that balance beam, I can still like you, but recognize I'd be irresponsible to let you jeopardize everyone else's livelihood. Is right. That- yeah. And I, I just don't think they, unless you, like I said, many people can't do this, but they're parallel there are parallel relationships in my mind. Uh, the CEO of any organization has a professional relationship with his CFO or his COO or his vice president of sales or any other direct report he may have, he or she may have in the organization. Um, he also has a parallel personal relationship with those people. Sometimes you don't like them. Sometimes it's not a good relationship on a personal level, but a great one professionally. Other times it's not a great professional, but it's good personal. You have to act on the professional. That's my that's my role. That's my job. That's what I'm paid to do. That is a dictum, you know, that I, that is that's non-negotiable. I will conduct the business of the CEO of this organization under any circumstances. The the parallel personal relationship, good or bad, uh, has no bearing on that decision making. And as long as you can look in the mirror every day and say that's true, that you're not being influenced to any major degree. Clearly we're human beings, everybody's influenced. But to not be influenced in any major degree, give preferential treatment to someone who's who's uh, who doesn't deserve it, um, and not seen as such, then I believe you can close that gap of professional distance and 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 close even though there's still parallel relationships, the gap between the two relationships become closer. And to your earlier point, I think it's a good one. You really see the value of that if things start going south. Because in, a, in an organization where you have a ton of people all trying to get the same objective with great deals of distance between them in terms of professional distance, and then you have competing interests to get to the same goal uh, because it's a challenge or there's obstacles or the market crashes like in 2008 or nine, and you get a lot of finger pointing and you really don't care about who keeps their job because you want to keep yours. And all of a sudden, the competing interests of the personal and the professional uh, become untenable. And uh, at least in the businesses I've run, uh, in good and bad times, because I've run two startup organizations, I'm not startup, sorry, uh, uh, um, uh, challenged organizations, uh, underfunded and challenged, um, that's a difficult ask for people to put the time and effort in to get the job done. And it becomes a lot easier if you've developed those uh, that trust uh, and uh and that loyalty to not only the man or the woman at the head of the uh, at the head of the company, but also the company itself. That's great. Well, I think we're going to cut part one of the episode off here. 
uh, for people who who might want to learn about Mighty Light products and and see what you guys produce, what's the best way for them to get in contact with somebody from your company? Oh well, the MightyLight.com has uh, all of our products online and all the uh, affiliated uh, companies we work with and all of our staff uh, contact information is there too. So I'd start there and. Uh, and then uh, if anybody uh, needs to, you can call me directly. <laughs> That's great. Okay, well, please tune in next week for part two. Uh, we're going to keep talking to John about people and leadership. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you'll remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York, and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was a former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now i think three or four hundred million dollars anyways he uh he started a new company called blipbillboards.com i'm super stoked they're a sponsor now but i I remember a year and some ago when i met him i thought it was genius instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents you pick what billboard you want it on what time of day you want it to run and it just puts so much power in the hands of of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.